0: Hello, this is Doug Hathaway. Welcome to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people on the planet. Raj Shah is the president of the Rockefeller Foundation and the author of a new book called Big Bets, How Large-Scale Change Really Happens. Dr. Shaw has been part of Big Bets for 25 years, from vaccinating nearly a billion children to helping countries fight Ebola and COVID, and now working to connect a billion people to electricity for the first time. Big Bets is a playbook for big change, full of inspiring stories and practical information you can use to achieve great things. Raj, congratulations on the book. It's really... (laughs) Got a lot of insights and inspiration for people who want to make change in the world, and that's what our listeners are all about. So thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Doug. It's great to be
0: with you. So let's dive into it. It's called Big Bets. What's a big bet? How do you define that? And what's an example from the book?
1: Well, big bets are are efforts to solve and not just make incremental improvements on some big challenges we face at home and around the world. And I wrote the book because I think there's so much negativity out there, uh, and it convinces people well, we can't do these big things on behalf of social impact. We can't, you know, can we vaccinate every child on the planet and reduce child mortality significantly? Can we fight hunger at scale and help hundreds of millions of people no longer be hungry? Um, Can we fight pandemics and keep them contained before they spread into kind of global catastrophes like COVID? that disrupt entire uh, societies and cause tens of millions of deaths. And so I wrote the book because I believe the answer to all those is we can. All three of those examples we did and they're in the book and they they are big bets. They are efforts to actually tackle at scale some tough
0: social impact problems. Yeah, let's dig into one of those. What's a good example for you from the book that has lessons for folks?
1: Well, the, the effort to uh, really immunize children around the world was, was uh, if I'm being honest, was how I learned about big bets. Uh, this was not necessarily a big bet I was in charge of. It was Bill and Melinda Gates had made a big bet after they read an article that said that 600,000 kids uh, in that year, I believe it was 1999, would die of rotavirus. and those kids would be in mostly developing and and at the time, low-income and poor countries. Uh, And actually, Merck was getting ready to roll out a vaccine in the United States, but no kids died of rotavirus in the United States. And when they learned that that vaccine wouldn't be available to kids who were actually at risk of suffering uh, and losing their life, they said, well, this isn't right. What, what What would it take to make sure every child across this planet received every vaccine that could save them from a vaccine-preventable disease and a childhood death. And over the next 20 years, we, we all collaborated around that with thousands of partners globally and achieved some amazing outcomes in protecting uh, children from simple diseases. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I know folks, a lot of folks listening would say, well, when you're Bill and Melinda Gates, you can afford to think big. <laughs> but one of your points is that you don't have to be a billionaire or president to have a big, what you call a big bet mindset. Tell us about that. What's a big bet mindset?
1: Well, and so, and that, you know, if I take that same example, I mean, uh, to me, the big bet mindset is saying, what would it take to vaccinate every child across the planet, as opposed to how can we use this amount of money we might have to do as, to do a little bit of good right now? And the difference was what I learned working with Bill and Lynn in those days. You know, Bill would pull us together. And, and one of the lessons is the power of a simple question. Bill would ask the question, what does it cost to vaccinate a single child? And a lot of experts would say, well, you can't answer that question so easily because it's complicated. It's always complicated to understand how human, resource, uh, human resources, cold chain and refrigeration, whether countries had uh, road infrastructure and the ability to deliver vaccines to communities in need, all of that adds complexity that makes it hard to answer the question. But he kept asking that simple question because he understood that if we could answer it, we would be able to identify how much resourcing was needed to vaccinate every child on the planet. And even though that was far in excess of the resources at the time the foundation had at its disposal, it was a roadmap for the world to solve a big problem. And those roadmaps are necessary.
0: Yeah, it's a good example, too, of solving big problems usually takes systemic thinking. You have to think of all those Aspects like you said, the road infrastructure, the refrigeration technology, that sort of thing. But a simple question, you said, is a technique to sort of unpack all that complexity.
1: Yeah. And frankly, I then learned that technique and used it time and again when I was at USAID and led the Haiti earthquake response. The simple question was, you know, who's in need and what percentage of that need are we meeting today? And the answer, is, so instead of saying, well, we're feeding 2 million people in Port au Prince. You would say, well, there are three and a half million people in Port-au-Prince that need emergency feeding, and we're reaching 60% of that cohort. You know, it's a different way of thinking about what you're trying to do. Don't, not, it's not being satisfied with, with a data point, but rather asking yourself, what does it take to actually reach everybody?
0: To get all the way there. Yeah. Why do you think folks, people are hesitant? What gets in the way of this kind of thinking?
1: Well, in the book, I call it the aspiration trap. Uh, and, and I feel like it's just, we're so inundated with uh, excuses, with reasons why our politics are too shattered, our institutions are too untrustworthy, uh, our corporate leaders are too greedy. Like, whatever the excuse is, we read all day about reasons why something is unattainable, when in reality, these problems are in fact solvable. You know, one of the chapters in the book is about after the 2008 financial crisis. There was a food crisis, and more than 100 million people were pushed back into a condition of hunger and malnutrition. It led to 47 episodes of political violence and upheaval around the world. And President Obama launched a big bet to fight uh, hunger and to make sure that we revitalized agriculture in dozens of vulnerable communities to prevent hunger in the first place. And that succeeded over time, but it succeeded because they aimed high. And they said the goal is to not allow this financial crisis to cause decades of downward pressure on the human development aspirations of, of vulnerable people.
0: So you're encouraging people to set big aspirational goals, and not get trapped in the fall in the aspiration trap, which is all the reasons you might not be able to accomplish that goals. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and frankly, when you when you start buying into all those reasons, it's also frankly an excuse for inaction. You know, one one of my favorite examples, something the foundation's working on right now and has for the last five or six years, which is just child poverty in the U.S. One quarter of all American kids are growing up in poverty, and you know, if you ask people, they will say, "Gosh, that's too bad," but it's a really complex issue, and it's uh, got racial uh, overtones and and community. Uh, equity issues and the job market and the economy. And in the reality, we saw in the last few years that one simple affordable policy, the refundable child tax credit, cut child poverty in America in half virtually overnight, was extraordinarily efficient and successful and you know could have been made permanent. It wasn't politically made permanent, but we work to, to build the political sport to do that because we know that it would wipe out 50% of child poverty. Like these are solvable problems if we can overcome the natural instinct to kind of wash our hands of responsibility.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask because the emphasis, the first word is big bets and you talk in the book about, there's lots of benefits to going big. What would you say about that? What are those benefits to going big?
1: Well, I found, you know, I, I led USAID, as you know, for, for a number of years. And, and I found that when we did sort of small incremental things, it was, almost, it was just as hard to secure the imaginations and commitments of partners in the private sector or the other side of the political aisle. Um, when we did big aspirational things, you can kind of tap into people's hopes and dreams in a way that's a little bit different. You know, I'll give you one example. We, we at the foundation have had a program that has worked on bringing renewable energy solutions to the billion people on earth that live in the dark, and they still live in the dark. It's called energy poverty, and it's less consuming less, less, less electricity than it takes to light one light bulb and to have a, a single household appliance per person per year. And so uh, we've been pioneering these solutions for a long time. And we finally started to find that these things could work at scale, mostly these solar mini grids that were rolling out across India, and the DRC and Nigeria and Ethiopia. And once we started to imagine a much greater scale and saying, instead of reaching a few hundred thousand people in India, we actually think we can reach a few hundred million people across the planet. We were able to attract partners who said, hey, that's exciting. That's something I want to be a part of because it's big and it's bold. And we put in five hundred million dollars, but so did the IKEA uh, Foundation, the Bezos Earth Fund, and uh, two dozen other partners have now collaborated to create the Global Energy Alliance with eleven plus billion dollars doing this in maybe twenty twenty two countries around the planet already like that's the kind of momentum you can get when you aim high uh, and are willing to be bold in your aspirations.
0: People are more excited and intrigued to get involved in big, big bets. That's interesting. And we've been talking about big bets, global scale, big resources. But I want to come back to this theme of anyone can think this way. Are there folks in the book that you can tell of us who have a big bet mindset or are not the billionaire and the, the president?
1: Absolutely. One of my favorite stories in the book is about a woman named Molly Melching. And Molly was, uh, grew up in Seattle, uh, ended up, as a student and then graduate student in West Africa. And she started traveling in rural communities in West Africa and learned that a lot of the girls there were subject to a practice called female genital cutting. And it, in addition to violating these girls, it was, it was horrific practice uh, that really changed their life trajectory. And they'd drop out of school and they, all these things that would hold back entire societies. So she started going to tribal leaders in village after village after village. And she built a movement to protect the dignity and human rights of young girls and to end the practice of female genital cutting, but also to invest in education for girls, to make sure girls were immunized against polio and other diseases that were pretty debilitating in that geography. And over time, she has millions and millions and millions of of girls are leading much more whole, much more aspirational lives because of Molly's big bet that she could change the mindsets of the communities in which these girls were growing up. And I think she's a wonderful example. I write about learning from her on trips to Senegal when I was early in my career. And I think there's so much to that story. That's a big bet anchored in local ideas and local solutions. It's a, a big bet. Carried out by someone who's, you know, not famous, should be famous in my mind, um, but but is not Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or or Melinda Gates, and and those are the real heroes in the book.
0: And you've touched on a few of the lessons from the book: thinking big, the big aspirational goal, while asking the simple, pointed question again and again. Obviously, working in partnership. What are some other uh, important takeaways from the book?
1: Well, one of the big lessons in, in my mind is called keep experimenting. And I wrote about it in the context of the 2014 response to the Ebola crisis, because during that crisis, you know, the Centers for Disease Control had estimated that 1.6 million people would get Ebola and that it would spread widely around the world. And President Obama made a big bet to deploy for only the first time in America's history our troops into, into West Africa to help create the conditions so that humanitarian actors could enter and together we could resolve Ebola in that setting. Over time, there were only 30,000 cases, 11,000 deaths, and there were very few. There were two cases in the United States, but neither uh, resulted from transmission within our nation. So that was a big bet that worked. But when the president made that judgment that he was going to deploy our troops, we actually didn't know exactly which interventions would stop transmission of this horrific disease. Uh, Ebola is a hemorrhagic fever. People would bleed to death in, in front of others in their communities, on the streets. It was really unimaginable. And, and, and at the time of our deployment, the mortality rate was 70%. So if you got Ebola, there was a 70% chance you were going to die, which is extraordinary. So, in that setting, the thing the troops were actually sent to do was to build these big Ebola treatment units. And it turned out people wouldn't go to them because, you know, if you went into one of those units, you never came out, your possessions never came out, your ashes didn't even come out. And so, uh, naturally, people wouldn't go. Instead, what we learned was that local communities had constructed a solution, which was removing the bodies of deceased family members using a WHO. Protocol, a World Health Organization protocol, uh, without washing and redressing and honoring uh, those individuals, which had been the custom. And those, the burial teams that we created based on that insight, ultimately reduced more than 70% of the transmission much faster than anyone expected. So I write in the book about how you keep an open mind and put a data infrastructure in place so that you can experiment uh, in even during, in the midst of a really intense crisis. And always search for better solutions to problems, more innovation and more solutions so you can have a better outcome.
0: That was a great example of a big bet preventing a big problem, interestingly. What's another example from the book that uh, really inspires you and, and provides another lesson?
1: Well, so one of those examples is how, and and I think it's important, because big bets to me start with fresh, innovative solutions like those burial teams, in in, in that case in rural Liberia, Uh, but they also require truly unlikely partners to come together, hold hands, and do extraordinary things. And I write in the book about building that unlikely partnership between Democrats and very conservative Republicans. Um, in our fight to expand the global fight against hunger during the Obama administration and uh, and I talk in the book about a lesson that I call "Make it Personal," because I learned the hard way that just having data and information and numbers and spreadsheets might be compelling to some types of people, and I'm one of them, uh, but it wasn't really compelling to uh, to everybody. And I had actually gone up to Capitol Hill and testified. Uh, about the impact of a Republican budget on our global health programs. And I said 70,000 kids would die as a result of these draconian Republican budget cuts. And uh, and while I was congratulated by some on the left, I quickly got a phone call that informed me that uh, Speaker Boehner at the time, the Speaker of the House, was upset with my language, felt it was disrespectful and, and asked to see me. So I went up and I saw the Speaker and he I apologized. He gave me a list of Republicans to see and get to know. And the message was, you know, if you get to know these people personally, and you understand their values, more more of them will support this global humanitarian mission um, than you think is true right now. And that proved to be correct. There's a strong faith-based conservative Republican support for America's global humanitarian activities. And I met senators, I prayed with them, we talked about our families, we traveled together. And those personal relationships at the end of the day uh, really helped codify the Global Food Security Act into law. It It helped us raise resources and visibility to crises that occurred in that window. I think it saved a lot of lives. And even more importantly, it's maintained America's role long after I left government and long after President Obama left government as the world's humanitarian leader.
0: Yeah, you know, we, when we started talking, you mentioned you wrote the book because people hear so much about the problems in the world that they are demotivated to address them. And we also hear so much about the divisions, which are real, obviously, in our politics, but that doesn't mean they can't be transcended to get things done.
1: Yeah, and we just don't hear about, you know, if you, if you have uh, a lot of personal engagement and you build personal relationships and those then allow for a different kind of bipartisan consensus to emerge on an issue like fighting hunger around the world. Unfortunately, that doesn't really make news in the same way. Uh, But to me, that's inspiring. It's exciting. It shows that people can come together and solve problems uh, even when it's tough. And I think that's true even today with our really deeply fractured politics.
0: What's a big bet you're working on now that has you inspired?
1: Well, well our, our biggest bet is an effort to use the renewable energy trend, uh, technology frontier to help both fight climate change and address global poverty. Uh, in addition to the reality that almost a billion people live in energy poverty, uh, the other fact most people don't know is that within two decades, 75% of all greenhouse gases will come from what we today call developing and emerging economies. And those 80 countries uh, are today receiving almost no meaningful financing to support a meaningful uh, strategy of reducing their carbon emissions. While in richer countries like the United States and China and Europe, we're pouring trillions of dollars into reshaping and greening our economies. And so our effort is to make sure that those 80 countries can access the batteries, the solar panels, the micro hydro technologies, someday the small modular nuclear technologies, that'll be a big part of ensuring that we have a truly green global economy and and avoid the 112 gigawatts of new coal that's coming online in these countries, avoid the heavy fuel oil that costs hundreds of of dollars a month for small uh, countries to import and burn, and avoid the very high cost of diesel generation and diesel backup that holds back most of these economies. And if we can achieve that together, you know we'll transform the fight against climate change. We'll move hundreds of millions of people out of poverty uh, and it would be an extraordinary big bet uh, and success story.
0: Yeah, that's an exciting one. Yeah let's unpack your method from the book, some of the lessons and methods through this example. So you have an ambitious and ambitious, audacious, aspiring goal.
1: Yeah, that's where it starts. And then we spent years and years uh, seeing if there were kind of new solutions to old problems. I mean, the, the traditional way of bringing electricity to communities that didn't have it was build big coal plants connected to grids, let the governments run those grids through public utilities, and see how you do. And the truth is, in most developing economies, that strategy has been a terrible one at providing reliable uh, low cost power and at reaching low income communities whether they're in urban slums or or rural areas so uh, so it was really the 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 work we did over years was creating these new solar mini grids using artificial intelligence to manage battery management energy management systems from from afar so you had fewer personnel costs baked into it inventing with partners these smart meters that allowed customers to pay for only the power they used and to do it on their mobile phones uh, and then looking at new battery technologies to figure out what would most durably reduce the the cost and we got the cost down from maybe a dollar 20 cents a kilowatt hour to just under 20 cents a kilowatt hour at which price point this is the best uh, least cost electrification strategy for hundreds of millions of people that live in the dark so that's sort of step one. Step two was finding partners that could help us scale. And uh, in our case, that started with a major public-private partnership between the Rockefeller Foundation and Tata Power, India's largest power company that's now building out 10,000 of these mini grids to reach 25 million people. But it's expanded with all these other company uh, public-private partnerships in the Congo we just announced in Goma and Eastern Congo efforts to build out electrification there. Nigeria, where they're building 10,000 of these grids. Ethiopia, where they're connecting the grids to irrigation to improve agricultural production and food availability. It's very exciting, but but those partnerships is what, what makes it go. And then the final component of a big bet is being able to measure results and be true to whether you're succeeding or not. Um, and something like electricity can be measured because you can track how much power a community consumes. You can evaluate how many customers you're reaching. You can uh, survey customers and find out whether their incomes are going up, they're creating jobs, and their families are moving up, or whether it's not such a good deal for them. And what we found is almost without fail, uh, when these systems roll out in communities, girls are studying at night in schools that stay open later than they otherwise would. Families are using it for agricultural processing equipment and post-harvest processing. The women buy sewing machines and start small tailoring uh, businesses. And all of that results in more income, more empowerment for girls, more safety with public lighting, uh, and a better trajectory forward for an entire community.
0: Well, you make it sound doable. I love the way you talk about these complex problems. You're breaking down the complex problems, which can be daunting, into their solvable components.
1: Yeah, and look, they're still complex, uh, and, and and so I in the book I I kind of come back to the idea that com- it's not that the problems are not complex. It's if we fixate on the complexity, we end up in the aspiration trap, and we we kind of believe that we can't solve these problems. Instead, if we focus on the solutions, over time you can see a path forward. And you know there are plenty of super complex issues with our energy effort, including how do you structure a financial solution to shut down a coal plant and invest in solar on that site to transition the, the source of uh, generated electricity. That's actually a deeply complicated thing to do. Uh, but we did it once in South Africa, now we're doing it again in Indonesia, and we'll do it again in Vietnam. And you know, once people see that solutions exist, they believe that big bets are possible and, and they kind of in their hearts believe that it's realistic to be optimistic about solving these problems.
0: That's awesome. Let's close on a, a word of advice you might have for somebody who's been listening. They're like, okay, big bets. What would be a word of advice to sort of get them going? What might be a first step they could take?
1: I'd say two things. The first is I do think you know uh, anyone can contribute to this type of work and this mission. And it starts with just sort of, learning about these issues so whatever area you're passionate about it could be fighting climate change it could be addressing inequality it could be working on racial injustice learning enough to be able to know how to use this methodology in that case is is a big part of success and uh, and so that's uh, that's one answer to that question the second uh, is perhaps more uh, more fun which is i benefited a lot Uh, because I got to work with people I learned from all along the way. And I think finding, uh, as you make decisions about your career and the projects you take on, thinking hard about the people you're going to work with and whether you're going to learn from them uh, ways that expand your thinking, that grow your leadership and that give you more confidence uh, to be someone who can make big bets, uh, that, that's that been very important to me. And I, I wish someone had told me a long time ago that, you know, decades into your career, it's like, that's the thing you'll cherish most is the people you got to work with and the people you were able to learn from. Uh, that would have been helpful to know earlier. Um, so I, I share that as well.
0: Absolutely. And I can recommend that folks pick up the book, Big Bets, full of insights, inspiration, practical tips. Raj Shah, thanks for all the great work you do. Thanks for joining us on Achieve Great Things.
1: Thank you, Doug. Great great to be here and thanks for all you're doing.